So anyway, uh, abortion was illegal in, in most states in 1973 when I graduated from college. And now we've gone through becoming a right, and now it's back um, where I think it belongs. Um, my senior year at Trinity, after I graduated, I mean, I look back, I can hardly believe this. There were no women's sports at Trinity, except intramural, or any college. And then Title IX passed. And I wasn't sure what that meant. Looking back, I'm glad. I like watching women's collegiate basketball and women's softball. And I'm so glad they did that. And then here we are 50 years later, when we should be celebrating that, um, the top woman swimmer in the United States is beaten in the NCAA finals by a man. And we're, the NCAA says, that's okay. Well, it seems like the whole Title IX thing has just been turned on its head. Uh, that's one of the crazy things um, that I think is going on in our, in our culture. Um, back in 1973, what was the social media? Television. Four stations, three local stations, and a, you know, P. Yeah, yeah the, the, what, what was that thing? The, yeah, public broadcasting. But there was enough of a name for it. Um, I don't know, anyway. And remember, radio TV went off at like 11 o'clock or midnight. Remember, they'd play the Star Spangled Banner, and then you'd go to bed. And if you couldn't sleep that night, you didn't watch TV. You read a book or something. Um, what else was the social media? Telephone. Rotary dial. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when, when I was in high school or when I was in college, if I was angry at somebody, well, I could yell at them, and then I could go home, and then I could stew, maybe call somebody on the phone and go, I don't like Joe. He just... But that's about as far as it went. And then by the next morning, I pretty much cooled off. And, and if I saw Joe, I said, I'm sorry we got into that. You know, now, what happens? If you're angry at somebody, you can tell everybody in the world and tell lies about them and get... And so we have all this bullying going on. I'm so glad they didn't know all this stuff when I was in high school and college. Nobody had a computer when I was in college. I remember in a phys physics class I took, um, calculators had just come out. I still have my original TI calculator. I still use it to balance my checkbook. And somebody brought a calculator into class. Dr. Bartels was our physics professor. And he said, I don't want to see that in here ever. I can't stop you from using that on your homework, but I don't want to see one. We were using slide rules. Um, a different world um, then we've now seen uh, now our culture is, is uh, are you all afraid to speak in public? I'm not the they say Americans number one fear is public speaking I'm not talking about that but when you're with other people are you find yourself checking yourself I do that now for the first time. Why? There's this fear in our culture. We're afraid of saying something wrong. People are easily offended. 
You know, the Bible says don't be quick to give offense nor to take offense. Well, that's out the window in our country. Um, I remember two families, this is now probably 12 years ago when I was pastor at Highland Park Prison Down. Two different families came to me, not connected, and told me the same thing. The mother and father came, not the kids. And they were telling me they're leaving the church. I'm like, oh gosh, what did I do now? What did I say? No, 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 we like you, we like the church. But it was the same story. The husband said, in my job, they're putting us all through sensitivity training, especially on the LBGQ stuff. And we've been told, if we find out that you're connected with any institution that is not affirmative and supporting of that whole thing, you will be immediately terminated. Well, now you're... Freedom of speech. Well, what about those things? They used to mean something. They don't now. They don't now. And when you've got a Department of Justice, Justice, who is running roughshod, in my opinion, over the law and the Constitution, and there's, we have a two-tiered justice system, and certain people are not going to be convicted for breaking the law, and others will be convicted that didn't even break the law. I mean, it's... It's crazy. So they said, Ron, we've got to leave because Highland Park Press, we had planted a church in the Oaklawn area of Dallas, which is the center of the LBG. And our pastor was a former practicing homosexual who came out of that lifestyle, got married, and, and he planted that church there. And we were seeing people coming out of that lifestyle to Christ. And we were in the papers because of that. And so we were considered the homophobic epicenter of, of Dallas. Um, we're now in an anti-family culture. I mean, it used to be that America was all about family and faith and football. Uh, the stuff I'm reading and hearing, uh, anti-family. Um, rising socialism. It's funny, all the people that support socialism, I don't think they've ever lived in a socialistic country. Uh, one of the things I got to do as a senior pastor of missions-oriented churches, I've traveled all over the world. I've been to China. I've been to Cuba. Uh, I spent 14 days in Cuba, and we had a sister congregation in Sego de Avila, right in the middle of the island, seven hours by bus from Havana. And here's what I observe. Havana, what a, you can tell this is a beautiful city. But there's literally, the buildings are propped up with steel girders keeping from falling down. And if your goal is nobody hungry, it works. Except the people all eat beans and rice and they get an allotment of meat one day a month, chicken usually. If your goal is to uh, get rid of homelessness, it works in Cuba. Nobody's homeless. But the homes are if you could hang a sheet over that table there, that would make a better home than most people have. Um, and nobody owns their homes, though. Nobody owns any property. If you're a brain surgeon, you make $18 a month in Cuba. If you're a janitor, you make $15 a month. Nobody can be fired from their jobs. I was down there to preach the 100th anniversary of our sister church, and they scheduled this celebrative service on a Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock. 
And I said to the pastor, I'll preach to two people. I don't care, but is anybody going to be here? He said, oh, it'll be packed out. People will be in the streets. We have, we're going to have um, uh, loudspeakers out there. They'll be looking in the windows. I said, don't they work? Oh, yeah, everybody has a job. Won't they get fired? No, no, you can't get fired. So, um, and our last night there, they had a fiesta for us, the church, and they fixed these chicken dishes for us. That meant their congregation pooled their monthly allotment of meat. It doesn't work, folks. It doesn't work. And you know, this whole thing in our country today of anti, you're getting my perspective here. I'm a big Civil War buff. This can all be traced back to the war between the states. Most people don't realize this, that um, when Lincoln was elected, the Republican Party, uh, he was not liked by the left wing of the Republican Party. They called themselves the black Republicans, not anything about race. But they were all fiery abolitionists. Um, They thought Lincoln was not in that direction far enough. And uh, I can't remember his name. It's a senator from Pennsylvania was their leader. What's his name? It'll come to me. He took a delegation during the war between states. He took a delegation of these black Republicans to Germany. Guess who they met with? Karl Marx. And they read the Communist Manifesto. And they said, this is what we need to bring back to the U.S. They were anti-constitutionalists. They thought the Constitution was put together by a bunch of white supremacist male slave owners. And we need to burn the whole thing down and, and rebuild it. And so this is nothing new that's going on in our country today. I'm a real believer, not in democracy, but in a federal republic. We are not a democracy. And part of the Communist Manifesto, I listened to a lecture on this the other day. The first goal is to get God out of the picture. Have you seen that happening in our country? Second is alter the language. Alter the language. Do you see that happening? Get rid of the family and get rid of the middle class. All these things are happening simultaneously in our country today. So we have a, in my opinion, a crazy culture out there. It's like living, I told my Bible study, the Thursday men's group, I said, it's, I feel like I'm Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And you can figure out who Nurse Ratchet is, but I won't say. Um, no longer is lying, and you know, lying used to be an art. Politi- you know, that old joke, how do you know when a politician's lying, his lips are moving? But it used to be an art. Now it's just, bl- they don't even try to artistically do it. They just blatantly lie. I listened. I'm, not, I'm a registered Democrat, folks, so I get to say this. I listened to our president on January 6th tell a flat-faced lie. He said, we're here to honor the five Capitol policemen that were killed on January 6th. With a straight face, he said that. How many Capitol policemen were killed on January 6th? Zero. How many people were killed on January 6th? One. By a Capitol policeman. And he said that. I mean, and everybody 
It's not even an art anymore. It's just blatant. Um, how do we navigate this surrounding culture as biblical Christians? This is nothing new. This is a question that's faced the church from the early church down to today. And um, I put up on the board here, there's been, usually theologians break this down into uh, four different ways that Christians have tried to relate to the culture. And one is called the Christ of culture. And that's when the church tries to go with the culture. And I think that's the worst thing that the church ever does. And you can argue that our previous denomination, that's what they did. Uh, whatever cultural bandwagon was come down the, the thing, they, they wanted to be relevant and cool, and they jumped on the man. Did you know that our former denomination, and Bob, you can go talk to Bob, he'll attest to this, that they have dismantled their mission board because they've declared that in their wokeism, that that's colonialistic. And so they actually, Bob's on the board of the Presbyterian Outreach Foundation, which Lewis helped start 40 years ago. And PCUSA reps came there and said, would you take our missionaries? Because we're not going to fund them anymore. That's Christ of culture. They, they have totally sold out to the culture. Now, it happens on both sides. Uh, all of us in this room, no matter how faithful we think we are, we are more seduced by the culture than we think. And this is the easiest way that Satan can get the church off track, is to succumb to the culture. Or Christians have taken an approach of Christ against culture. Whatever the culture is, we're going to battle it. And so you have like the moral majority, or you have these people, they want to do combat with the culture. And that's very attractive to, you know, culture warriors. Um, I'm not sure that's where God wants us to be, although, you know. And then there's an approach called Christ over culture. It's kind of like, well, we're in a relationship with Christ and we're kind of above all that. And you might say the Amish would be an example of that. And you know, we just withdraw or, you know, monasteries. So we just leave the culture alone, let them do their thing, and we're going to put a circle the wagons and protect ourselves. In the Reformed tradition, which we Presbyterians are part of, after John Calvin, uh, we've taken more of the approach of Christ transforming culture, that our job is to be salt and light, not withdraw from the culture, not be seduced by the culture, not to necessarily battle it, but by being faithful Christians, be salt and light. Um, sometimes you can see that working, sometimes you don't. I remember when I was in college, the San Antonio Light had an article about these six Presbyterian pastors who announced they're going to go down. Now, downtown, they used to have burlesque shows and bars, dancing girls and stuff. They were going to get to know all the bartenders and the girls and transform downtown. They did one of those where are they now articles in the light like 10 years later. 10 years later, every one of those six pastors here in San Antonio had... Um, renounced their ordinations, were divorced, and were pretty much now in this camp. <laughs> they were dating the showgirls. And when the church tries to, to, to transform the culture and get it, oftentimes the culture wins. So you have to be really, really careful. Um, in fact, most of the time the culture wins. And um, 
one thing I want to hold before you through this whole thing is, you know, there's the verse in Scripture about not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I don't believe there's any political answer, economic answer, um, military answer to the problems in our culture. Because I think we are in spiritual warfare. The Bible says Satan is the father of lies and his job is to confuse. And when you have your friends who are college educated say, well, we can't really be sure how many genders there are. That is, uh, that's spiritual warfare. The one thing you have to know about spiritual warfare, who, who is your enemy? It's not the culture. It's not your friend who won't talk to you because you got vaccinated or won't get vaccinated. Satan is the enemy. The others are the hostages. And so as Christians, it, I have a hard time remembering that. I want, I'm, a, I'm a Scot. I want to pull out my William Wallace sword and be Christ against culture. Um, we have to remember we're doing battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. So uh, we best wage, we best navigate this journey on our knees. Now, I don't feel very smart in this area, and I, could, I feel like I could just ramble off and get on my little hobby horses. So I thought, what can I choose? Uh, the Bible, but also on top of that, to kind of give me some, put, put some rails on this thing. And I thought about, well, gosh, what was going on 90 years ago? That would have been 1933. I've handed out this thing. It's called the Barman Declaration. I want this to be our kind of anchor over the next six weeks. And it's got six uh, points to it. And we're going to go through the first one today. And we'll, and, or we may not get through number one today. This is going to be like when you're an associate pastor and you get your time comes up to preach, you feel like you've got to get everything said and that because it's another six weeks before you get to preach. Lewis had me preach about every six weeks. And then when I became a senior pastor, I realized, wait a minute, I don't have to say everything. Sometimes I would end a sermon and just go, well, that's enough for today. We'll pick that up next week because I preached Lectio Continua through books of the Bible. And so we may not get through point one today fully. We'll pick it up next week. Um, so anyway, Barman Declaration, let me just tell, tell you a little bit about that. 1933, Hitler has taken over Germany. He's been elected Fuhrer or appointed or whatever you want to call it. And uh, the first thing Hitler did was compromise the church. He knew that if he's going to get a control of Germany, German... Germany was a Christian nation, uh, largely three denominations, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed. And um, he uh, based, and the church was fairly united in Germany, especially the Lutherans and Reformed. Uh, they called themselves the Evangelical Church of Germany, and they were very integrated in a lot of ways. And uh, Hitler compromises the church and really takes it over and points bishops and pastors. And the majority of the German evangelical church becomes pro-Hitler, pro-Third Reich. Except God always has a remnant, a righteous remnant. 
And there are a number of uh, pastors and theologians who listened to Hitler and they thought, this is not right. This guy is really placing himself above the gospel, above the church. And so they formed what was called the Confessing Church, and it was a church that went underground. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those guys who later was martyred. Um, you know, Bar- Bonhoeffer's an interesting guy. He was, um, if you've never read Eric Metaxas' biography of him, it's really, it's, it reads like a, a you know, detective novel. And Bonhoeffer comes out of World War I, sees the devastation of World War I, becomes a pacifist. And, um, but then as Hitler takes control, Bonhoeffer has a radio program, and he starts criticizing the Fuhrer and the Third Reich. And so he gets word that they're basically going to be after you to shut you up, to cancel you. you know, they had very much of a cancel culture in Nazi Germany. So he's invited to come to the U.S. to Union Seminary in New York to study, and he does that. Then things get worse in Germany, and he was advised, stay in the U.S. where you'll be safe. And he says, no, I've got I to stand with my people and with the real church. So he goes back to Germany and uh, becomes a part of the underground church, organizes a seminary, underground seminary to train pastors. And he's got a price on his head. And he makes this paradigm shift in his life. He sees how bad Hitler is, and he senses that uh, there's a lot of people dying because of this man. You know, there was a woman in this church back in the 80s. Her name was Berta something. And she, I remember she went into Methodist Hospital, and she was probably about, I don't know, 60-something years old. And it was back in the days before they threw you out quickly from the hospital. So she was in there about a week, and I was visiting her just about every day. And we got, kind of got to know each other. So I, I said, you know, Berta, you lived in Germany during World War II. Yes. In fact, she says, I was a nurse, and I enlisted in the German army as an army nurse. I was like, and I said, well, can we talk about that? She said, yes, I need to. She said, I had no idea what was going on. We were told we were invaded by Poland, and we were defending ourselves. And she said, so I, I was a German nurse in German army, and she said, I remember American planes would fly over dropping leaflets, talking about the concentration camps and stuff. And we were told, that, that's just propaganda, it's not true. She said, it wasn't until after the war that I realized I was a part of a demonic machine, and I had to confess that to God. So Bonhoeffer's aware stuff's going on, but he's not exactly sure what the depth of that is. But he finally makes a, a paradigm shift. He says, to allow Hitler to live, to kill him would be a sin, but to allow him to live is a greater sin. So he becomes a part of the plot, you know, the briefcase that blew up. He becomes a part of that. And, you know, this is one of these things I want to ask God. You know, four German officers were killed standing around Hitler, but he wasn't. God, what? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, Bonhoeffer's hunted down, and then he's, he's hung five days before his concentration camp is liberated at the end of the war. But anyway, uh, Karl Barth, who's Swiss, but was teaching in Germany, 
He's also in the underground church. Bart is probably the chief uh, author of this. Um, and in some ways, it doesn't look all that radical. But these guys, in writing this, real, I, I mean, they knew that by declaring this and signing this, they were signing their death warrant if they were caught. What would give them the courage to navigate Nazi culture in a way without compromising it and becoming a part of it, uh, not withdrawing from it? Um, what gave them that courage? Point number one is the first thing you and I need to realize we need to own up to if we're going to faithfully navigate the current culture. Let's, let's read this. In view of the errors of the German Christians, that's what the, the mainline church that had compromised with the Nazis, in the view of the errors of the German Christians and of the present Reich church administration, even there, this declaration is making a, a difference between the German Christians are all like the, the laity who are part of the church. Yeah, they've been duped. But there's also the Reich Church administration. Those are the bishops and administrators that Hitler infiltrated throughout the church, which are ravaging the church, at the same time also shattering the unity of the German evangelical church. We confess the following evangelical truths. Number one, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know what's ironic about this? Um, that is the beginning point. But of all verses in Scripture, that verse is probably the most politically incorrect verse in our culture today. And oftentimes, I'm in a funeral, I'm asked to preach in John 14, 1 through 6. Um, and I've had people come up to me, oh, I was so offended because in verse 6, that you, I said, your offense is with Jesus, not me. I, he said it, I didn't. Um, <laughs> Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, John 10, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold through the gate but climbs in it by another way is a thief and a bandit. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved. And so then they make a comment on that. Jesus Christ, as he's attested to us, in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. So they're saying Jesus has to be the number one thing above everything else. Your allegiance must be to him over any government, over any hierarchy, church hierarchy, over anything. In fact, your allegiance has to be so strong that you're willing to die rather than compromise that. Now, that's sort of duh. But have you and I owned that? Is Jesus the number one thing? Are we committed to Christ enough that if America turned into something as despotic as Nazi Germany, we would stand our ground and be willing to die? You know, every day I pray, Lord, I commit myself to you this day, everything I have, everything I am, and I make the decision today, I will die for you. I, I'm not going to have to make the decision if, you know, something happens and I'm put up, you know, renounce or, no, I, I made that decision every day of my life before I, I'm not going to 
yield on that. Um, there used to be a bumper sticker you used to see on cars that says, Jesus is my, or God is my co-pilot. That's one of the biggest heretical statements you can make. God is no one's co-pilot. Jesus will not accept second place in your life and mine. The temptation of my life is to build my life, get all the things in my life I want, and then put a little cross on top of it and claim it for Jesus. That's not, that doesn't jive with Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. You know, crosses are only used for one thing, and it's not fun. And you know, when we say, yeah, I'm willing to take up my cross and follow Christ wherever he leads, look at where he goes and look at the New Testament. Follow Christ around. He's always moving toward pain and hard stuff and confrontation. Um, I don't want to go there. I, lo- I loved Christendom when everybody was... When I started the ministry, I was ordained in this church. I was respected around town. So I'm associate pastor at First Press. Oh, oh. By the time I finished the ministry in 2019, um, you know, I'd say, well, I'm a pastor. <laughs> you know, people... I used to go to Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world. I mean, I, I'm joking here, but I used to go there to get respect. In Jakarta, if a Muslim came up to me and said, who are you? What do you do? I'm a Christian pastor. Oh, they respected Christian pastor. Not in America right now. Um, so anyway, um, the Barman Declaration really is a framework for us to get our bearings on how to live as resident aliens. If you're like me, I tend to think in a day-to-day, biz- day-to-day basis that the world and everything good in it, it really is my home. I like it. I, I love the beauty of the earth. I love living a lifestyle that's part of the 1%. We're all in this room part of the 1% wealthiest people in the world. I like that. I don't want to really give that up. Um, am I willing to sacrifice that if Jesus calls me away from it? And don't kid yourself. Um, I always like to say the most, the thing that impacts our faith more than anything else is economics. I mean, I, my family's all from the South. My great-grandfather was a Confederate captain, James Madison Skates, 40th Virginia. He didn't own slaves. But, you know, I'm a Civil War buff. I read extensively all the time on it. And, you know, the greatest defender of slavery in the U.S. happened to be the greatest theologian who existed at that time. And he was Presbyterian. Robert Louis Dabney. Chris, remember Dabney Hall at Union Seminary? And, uh, oh, I'm I'm sorry, Robert Louis Dabney. No, no, Uh, there's Dabney Hall. Um, James Henley Thornwell was the greatest theologian, the biggest defender of slavery. It's amazing when, if your economic lifestyle is threatened, how much you become blind to stuff in your life. Uh, I think I've said that in this class before. When I was an intern at a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, I'd never seen Christians, committed Christians, really smoke in public. 
uh, before, except Louis Abena. And uh, I was at Forest Hill Presbyterian Church, Charlotte, and we had two services. And between the services, a bunch of the elders would be outside smoking. And this was right at the time when the Surgeon General came out with, you know, they put on the sides of cigarette packs, you know, this is going to kill you. And, I mean, these, these guys were all college-educated guys, and I got to know them well. And one day I said, you know, I'm just interested. How, how can you guys smoke? <laughs> and they said, oh, the Surgeon General's stupid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm like, then as I probed these guys' lives, they're all invested in tobacco. This tobacco road, Charlotte. And um, if, they, if they accepted what the Surgeon General that is true, they'd have to divest themselves of what was making a lot of money for that. So um, anyway, are we willing to really make Jesus the number one thing in our lives? And this document talks about um, is the one, Jesus is the one word of God whom we have to hear, whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. Um, you know, we, we talk about the Word of God in two senses as, as Christians. There's the living Word, that's Jesus. Flesh and blood, Jesus. Then there's the written Word, the, the Bible. Um, and my premise is, after you realize that Jesus has to be number one in your life, and this is a spiritual war in, you've got to make a decision about the living Word, but then also about the written Word. Again, part of where I think our previous denomination went off the rails is it stopped believing its own language in its own confession of faith about Scripture. That Scripture is the inspired, infallible Word of God. And they got away from that. Um, I don't mind using the term inerrant. I think the Scriptures are inerrant. They're not going to lead you into error uh, when rightly interpreted. And uh, Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Evangelical Disaster, he's a Presbyterian theologian, he's dead now. Chapter 2, that book, he shows how once the church lets go of, of Scripture, in looking at it as an inerrant, really the supreme authority for faith and practice, it's only a matter of time before you begin compromising with the culture. And that's what happened in our previous denomination. It let go of, of, of Scripture. Um, okay. I remember a woman coming in to me in my office at Highland Park Press making an appointment. And I hadn't been there, I don't know, maybe six months. And she looked at me and said, why do you always preach from the Bible? This is Highland Park, right? And she said, you know, Ron, there are a lot of other good books out there. Leo Biscaglia writes, no. I mean, uh, and you know, note what they say here. Um, we reject the false doctrine the church could and should recognize as a source of its proclamation beyond and besides this one word of God. Yet other events, powers, historic figures, and truths as God's revelation. This kind of leaves the Mormons out here. Um, they've added the Book of Mormon to it. 
You can't add or take away from the Word of God, either who Jesus is or what's in here. That's until you and I get to the point where, yes, I, I'm going I'm to make Jesus Lord of every facet of my life, not just spiritual stuff, not just Sunday. Well, that temptation to come here on Sunday and live in the spiritual world, then, oh, but tomorrow's the real world. I can't tell you how many people used to shake my hand at the door of every church I serve and go, well, pastor, now it's back out into the real world. I'd say, no, you've just been in the real world. Now it's back out into that crazy place. Um, it's here. One of the reasons we come here is to get reoriented. It's like a, you know, a plumb line. You get your compass reset because six days of the week, the world, the culture is going to tell you just about the opposite of what you're hearing from the pulpits and Sunday school classrooms here. So, I'm going to leave you with a question. Are you, and I, I want you to take this seriously, because it could happen. Are you and I willing to die rather than compromise the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That's the decision all these men and women made before they signed this document. And they knew that many of them would die. And if you go back in the history of our country, the founders of this country, the guys that signed the Declaration of Independence, they knew that most likely they would lose everything, probably even their lives. And a lot of these guys were wealthy, and they gave up just about everything. Um, what does it take to get you and me there? Um, I would encourage you to make sure you know not about Jesus, but to know Jesus firsthand, your personal relationship with him. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come talk to me. I'll be glad to tell you how you establish a personal relationship with Christ so that he is Lord of lords and King of kings over every facet of your life. He's much interested in what you're doing on Tuesday afternoon at 4 o'clock as he is what you're doing here today. And then secondly, I want to challenge you. To, it's not too late to get in on Bible reading program where you're reading through the entire scripture through the year. I do this. I'm on my 45th or 6th time straight through the Bible. You can Google Bible reading plans. It'll take you about 25 minutes a day. But I guarantee you, you're getting bombarded um, and social media now is the, the spiritual warfare battleground of the entire world. It's all happening on that phone you've got in your pocket or your purse. And you're getting messages, seductive ones, good-sounding ones. Unless you're going back through this every day and getting reoriented, you're going to easily fall into that first thing and become compromised with the culture. We all want to be loved, respected, and thought well of. And right now... Um, they say, and I don't know how exactly how they figured this out, but um, in, up until 2004, the culture was pretty much affirming of the church. We like having churches in our neighborhood. Yeah, the church is a good thing. Then from 2004 to 2014, it became, well, we'll tolerate the church being around. And they say in 2014... 
the culture turned 180 on the church, and now the church is looked at as bigoted, uh, you know, wet blanket on the party, and a bunch of hateful, bigoted people, if you affirm the Bible. And so some churches are trying to, oh no, we're just all love and, you know, uh, biggest church in America, just three hours to the east of us, but you'll never hear the gospel there. So that's not going to be first prayer of San Antonio. Make Jesus number one, get into his word and ask the Holy Spirit to, to hone you into someone who can faithfully navigate the culture. You know, my theory may not be right. My, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know what I think the underlying message of that is? Um, you can make any journey if you have the right companion. You know, here are these hobbits. They're not very smart. and They're kind of, they're not very strong. But they're able to make this journey because they have the right companions. That's why it's so important to be a part of a church, a Bible-believing church. We're making the journey together. There's no place for Lone Ranger Christians out there. You're going to get picked off pretty easily. So I don't know what the next 50 years is going to bring in our country, but my dear friend Paul Kasher, our fellow teacher, uh, he's in this prayer group we have every Wednesday morning, and we commiserate about the state of the nation. And he always ends by saying, guys, none of this makes God nervous. And that's true. That's true. He's sovereign. He cannot be dethroned. But make sure uh, you're close to that throne. Let's pray. Lord God, you've placed us here at a certain time, in a certain place in history. We're not here by accident. Um, in some ways, the church has been here before. In fact, there are places around the world where North Korea, China, Vietnam, where uh, they would love to have the freedom that the church has here in the United States, even though we're uh, suffering mild persecution. Um, Lord, I think of that teenager in Nigeria, a 14-year-old boy, who was told to renounce his faith or be killed, and he didn't renounce it. And another teenager in Pakistan I read about today, same thing. He refused to renounce his faith in Christ. I think about all those Armenian Christians in World War I, over a million of them, who were lined up, a gun put, men, women, and children, a gun put under their chin. They were told if they said Allah, they could walk free. If they said Jesus, they would be shot and pushed into a ditch and then buried. And not one Armenian Christian broke ranks, over a million, who died. Lord, they can't do that on their own strength. That was your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill each one of us that we would go up from here, not in anger or with a warlike spirit, but to be salt and light, to be men and women of grace and truth, not compromising uh, the truth, not lying to feather our nests. Lord, uh, help us to surrender everything we have, everything we own to you and to be good stewards of all you've given us, and be willing to let go of what you call us to let go of so that we can hold on tighter to Christ. And ultimately, Lord, help us to remember it's not whether we can hold on to Christ. The gospel of grace is that he says, I will never let go of you. 
Help us to believe that and then live with a, a humble boldness and a courage that hopefully will attract others to the one they can see shining through us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.